0: We've been studying true worship and what that means. And we've been looking lately at John chapter 4, verse 24, which we don't need to turn to this morning, where Jesus says, My Father is looking for true worshipers, and they worship in spirit and in truth. In verse 24, he says, For God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. We've looked at why in spirit because God is a spirit and worship is a response to who he is. And so it takes the spirit of God to reveal to us what he's like because you can't see him with your natural eyes. And anybody in the Bible that's ever seen him or even one of his emissaries, an angel, they have an immediate response which is to fall on their face and recognize the holiness and the awesomeness and the greatness of who this God is. And so our eyes are blind to that, our natural eyes are blind, but our spiritual eyes are blind until he begins to reveal himself. And the Spirit of God, as we just quoted in that prayer, that's part of his assignment. We also have to worship in spirit because God is spirit, and you have to worship him in the realm in which he exists and what he is. And God has put his spirit in us so that we can do that. So we don't worship him with our mind. You can praise with your mind. We don't worship Him with, 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 uh, with any part of us except it comes out of our spirit. And that's what makes worship different from praise and thanksgiving. You can choose to, to express thanksgiving to God anytime you want, and we should do that all the time. We can choose to praise Him because it's an expression back to Him acknowledging what He's done. But worship is a response in our spirit to seeing who He is as a spirit. And that, we can position ourselves, we can prepare the way, but that, because it's a response to seeing Him, it's not something we can make happen on our own. And so as we sang, it it was even spoken out by the Spirit earlier, you know, God inhabits the praises of His people, but what those praises do is they they open a doorway for God to us in our spirit, and and to making a connection with Him, and it's in that connection that we get a sense inside of us of something about Him, and that's what comes out of our heart in response to Him, and that's what true worship is. And never look at this, you know, oh, well, if all, you know, if all we've been doing is praising, that's not bad, praise is good, there's a whole lot in the Bible about praising but if we think that's worship then we're never going to attain to what God's really calling us to we're never going to reach that level that's there and so that's where God is drawing us that's what we've been learning about and then we've been looking over the last few weeks at the second part of that well why does it have to be in truth I mean obviously we're supposed to do everything in truth right right Right. right I love it when somebody comes well pastor to tell you the truth and I'll immediately think does that mean the rest of the times you weren't because if you've got to raise a flag, that I'm now telling you the truth. <laughs> but I understand what we mean. Even Jesus would say, verily, verily, I say unto you. But that wasn't because he wasn't telling the truth. He was trying to get their attention and say, look, you know, this is, I'm really, you know, you really need to, le- really need to listen to this. And I know that's why people say that. But, but that's not what this is talking about. God is truth. And the word truth means exposed, nothing hidden, nothing held back. What you see is what you get. And we saw that because prayer worship is a response to who God is. In fact, we looked in Isaiah chapter 6. And we're not going to turn there right now. Isaiah chapter 6 is where God calls Isaiah by vision up literally into his throne room for the purpose of seeing God as he is. And Isaiah's response was he saw the angels swirling around the the throne of God, and all they did was sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Heaven and earth is filled with His glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah, when he saw this, when he saw God, and he heard the voice of those angels, i didn't talk about God's voice, the voice of the angels shook the doorpost of the throne room, he fell on his face and says, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. So we saw in that the pattern of worship. It begins by really getting a glimpse of who God really is. And then the next thing is to see in light of that who I really am. Because the word worship comes from an English word, old English word, worth, W-O-R-T-H, ship, which means to recognize the exceeding greater value worth of someone or something else as compared to me. We talked about standing in front of a glorious, you know, a masterpiece, painting or whether it's a sunset or something that's just so aw- strikes you with such awe and, and you just stand and look at it and I told you about our, our kids that went through the, the, the National Art Gallery. This was 18 years ago and they're just like my teenagers are standing there looking at these masterpieces going, wow. And why is it? Because there's something awesome about a creation that you can't do and realizing and admiring I may not understand all the brush strokes and the techniques but I can can recognize a work that's been done that I have no possibility of doing let alone just really understanding and that creates a sense of awe and that's what worship really is it's a sense of awe of who God is but in order to do that we have to be able to see who He really is and then see who we are in comparison not to condemn us but for the purpose of treasuring and valuing who he is. And one of the challenges, the problems in the church today is we've lost that. There's more worship albums out there. There are more worship leaders out there. There's more worship music out there than ever before. And yet the church is worshiping less. The church is worshiping less, praising, yes, singing songs to God, loving God maybe, but there's no fear of God, there's no awesomeness of God, because if there were, it would affect how we live our lives. And God is, I believe, opening our eyes because He's calling us to that, not because He's angry at us, not because He's condemning us. So we've seen that truth is to be able to recognize our openness to be willing to see God for who he is which means I've got to be willing to set aside my preconceived ideas either that I've been taught or I formed myself and I want to hold on to because I want God to be that way or maybe I don't want to hold on to it but it's just so entrenched in me and we need the help of the Holy Spirit to reveal who he really is but we have to be open to change how we see God in line with his word in line always with His Word. But then we talked last week about there's another side to truth. Because then if, if worship is seeing who I am compared to God, I've got to be open to see who I really am in God's eyes. And that's not so comfortable. And that's where truth comes in again. Because again, the word truth means nothing hidden. And that's what it was like in the garden before Satan came in. And and worship requires us to come back to that place where we allow the Spirit of God to open our eyes and to face what we really like on our own apart from God. And I don't care how holy you think you are compared to perfection. We fall way short. All of us do. The good news is... God's grace has been given to us to make up that difference and we ended last week by realizing that you can't fully appreciate and treasure the grace that's been given to us until you fully treasure how much you need it, what you're really like on your own and what I'm really like on my own. So what we want to do is we want to have these images we presented to God. It's kind of like the fig leaves that Adam and Eve prepared because they wanted to cover themselves so that they covered their sin and they covered the parts of them that they didn't want God to see now. Of course, you can't hide anything from God, so all you hide it from is yourself. And then God had them put down their, with their creation to protect themselves, their self-image, and God gave them skins to cover themselves that He gave them. He gave them a new image that came from Him. And that's what happens when we come to Christ. That's what happens when we come to Christ. And so that's what we talked about last time. What we're going to begin to talk about now is, all right, who is this God? We've talked about what true worship is. We've talked about that worship is, is seeing God for who He is and, and then seeing us for who we are and seeing that in truth. Well, what does the Bible tell us about who He is? What does the Bible say about Him? We're going to begin to look today at what the Bible says with God because the only place you can find out what God's like is from Him. Because if you try to figure it out on your own, you will fall so far short. And that's what religion does. Religion is man's idea trying to come up with what God's like, the God we want. And only God can tell you who He is. Because over and over again, it says something, when He says something about Himself, He says, I'll do exceeding abundantly beyond what you can ask or think. I'll give to all men generously. He talks about Himself in, ex- in superlatives the peace of god that passes understanding the love of god that pass surpasses your mind's ability to understand but does that mean we can't grasp it no we grasp it with the spirit but that means god has to show himself to us well he's given us his word to do that and we're going to just look at we're not going to do an exhaustive study of this but just enough so you have some idea where to look and begin to meditate And so, turn with me as we begin to look at this. We're going to look at, start in Exodus chapter, excuse me, uh, go to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We're not going to stay here long. There's an aspect of this I want you to see. Because when it comes to knowing God or knowing what God's like, if you don't understand this basic principle that we're going to talk about right now, you can become confused and for many years I was. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Jesus, this is, the, this is the Lord's prayer. But notice what Jesus says. He says, In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father, who's in heaven, hallowed or holy or sacred, is the word actually means, be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, and the rest of that prayer. Notice Jesus starts out by addressing God in two ways. Our Father, which to the Jews at that time was a completely foreign concept. They saw God as their creator. They saw God in a relationship like husband to wife because he would talk about a relationship. But they didn't see a relationship. They wouldn't ever call him Father. In fact, they didn't even dare pronounce the name we're going to look at in a few minutes. But notice he says, Our Father who art in heaven hallowed or holy or sacred is your name. So there's two aspects to this. There's the aspect of God's holiness and sacredness and hallowedness. And then there's the aspect of Him in His relationship to us as a father to a child. And what you'll find is basically that's the division between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, which is what we're going to look in this morning... It shows you the reverence and the holiness of who this God is. In the New Testament, He's revealed revealed to us this as a Father. But don't think that when you turn the pages from the end of Malachi 4 over to the first verse of Matthew chapter 1, that the God of the Old Testament disappears. It's not like God turns over a new leaf and suddenly becomes the benevolent, loving Father that He wasn't in the Old Testament. He's the same God in the New Testament as He was in the Old Testament. There's just a different aspect of His nature and of His intention and in relationship with us that's being revealed. And I think so many Christians in this day and age forget this. We live in an age of grace, and you've heard me say this before. Grace is not, the, is not, the, is not an eternity. Grace is a parenthesis in time. You know what a parenthesis is? You read a sentence and then the author wants to tell you something about what they just said or what they're about to say. So what they do is instead of a new sentence, they have a parenthesis and they have this statement in the middle, which is where you kind of, you know, stop what you're talking about. Let's look at this statement and then go back to what you're talking about. In the God of the Old Testament, then we have the parenthesis of the grace that comes through Christ. And then when this age of grace is over, parenthesis, we go back to the, the absolute, holiness of God, and when anyone's in the presence of the holiness of God on their own, you either be, better be as holy as he is, or you die. And so what protects us from that? is the two parenthesis. <laughs> what protects us from that is the blood of Christ. What protects us from that is the cross. What protects us from that is the covenant that we have been brought into through the blood of Christ. And by giving our life to Him and Him giving His life to us, we've been brought within that. We are in the cleft of the rock. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. You're hidden in a rock to protect you from the holiness and the righteousness of God. And so we're going to look now in the Old Testament to see what this God is like, because we don't have to look at Him out of fear. We want to look at Him out of reverence. Out of reverence. And the church has forgotten this part of God so often. So go with me to Exodus chapter 3. Well, excuse me, I've got two other verses I want to show you. I'm trying to get there, but I want to show you this background. Well, let me tell you, you can go there. Uh, Romans 11, Paul's talking about the church and he was dealing with the issue in Romans 11. He's saying, be careful. He said, "Israel, Israel rejected God's plan when they rejected Christ. And therefore, God opened up salvation to you Gentiles. Yeah, thank you, Lord is right. But don't become proud because God's given this grace to you and look down on the Jews because they rejected it. Because Paul says, he talks about an olive plant. He said, if God was willing to cut off the old olive plant that rejected Christ and graft you in as an engrafted branch, and if you reject him, don't you think he'd also do the same to you and then verse 22 he says behold both the severity and the kindness of god behold look at see see he's talking about grace he's the whole first 11 chapters of romans is all about the grace of god and it culminates in chapter 11 at the very end he says oh how majestic how how wonderful are his ways they're almost beyond perceiving he just almost trips out on praising god at the end of that chapter because he's been talking for 11 chapters about God's grace and how we didn't deserve and got what we didn't deserve and didn't get what we did deserve and how grace has been lavished upon us and now he says God's given this grace to you because the Jews rejected it don't become so proud thinking you've earned this grace because if you've earned grace it's no longer grace So he's saying, you're living in the kindness of God, but don't ever take that for granted because you have that kindness because it costs him everything to give you that kindness. Amen. Behold both the severity and the kindness of God. So there are two aspects to God we need to be aware of. There's the mercy and the grace and the love and the compassion, but there's also the firmness and the righteousness. See, when God, when God gave His grace to us, grace doesn't mean that God looks the other way at our sin. See, we parents tend to do that. You know, Johnny, if you don't clean your room, you can't, you know, if you don't clean your room, if you, if you do that again, if you do that again, you're going to get a spanking. And Johnny does it again. And you say, if you do that again, you're going to get a spanking. If you do that, you know, and what we do is we, what we want to look the other way so we don't catch them at it because we don't want to give them the spanking. Oh, come on, don't look at me that way. <laughs> and we say, well, I'm going to cut them a little slack. I'm going to give them a little grace. But then we think that's what God's really done with us. That he's kind of looked at us and said, well, you know, they're just human. They're just human, but humans don't get into heaven. (laughs) Just being human doesn't do it. Be holy as I am holy. God's standard is still holiness. God's standard is still perfection. And the only reason you and I aren't fried on the spot is because we're in Christ who is perfect. We're in the cleft of the rock who is perfect. We've been joined to Him and He's absorbed us and paid for that. But don't ever forget why we're in Him. Don't ever forget that because when we do, we begin to talk, we begin to live out what's called a cheap grace. And there's no such thing. That's a false grace. And so, and then again we see this now, we see this in the book of Acts, over in Acts chapter 9, I'll give you the reference. You don't need to turn there. Acts chapter 9, where where Paul says uh, uh, that that what happened is Paul gets saved and he just goes on, you know, he just goes on, he's like a brand new preacher that's been saved. He's preaching Christ everywhere and he's created such a ruckus, they send him back to to Troas. And they just, you know, it says, and then peace came. (laughs) Then peace came to the church and they were were multiplied, the church multiplied and it says, they were walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of, of the Holy Spirit. And here's what the, I want to go over this because I want you to understand how these two fit together. There's a picture years ago, it's very popular, when John F. Kennedy was in the White House of him sitting at the desk in the Oval Office with I don't remember who was else in the picture. Here's the seat of power in the in the in the world at that time. And under the desk, remember that? Yeah is this picture of, I don't know how old old he was, his son John John playing under this desk. And he's comfortable there playing like a kid because he's in his father's office. It's just dad. Whatever he called him, this is daddy, dad. I'm just in dad's office. Not realizing in this picture of what's going on around him in this office and the decisions that are made that literally affect whether the world's going to live or not. The power in that office. And yet he was in there as a child. And where to come into the throne room as a child. Completely open and comfortable, not worrying whether we're dressed like the Secretary of State or we've gone through the protocol of having, you know, go through the three or four secretaries you got to go through before they permit you, plus the Secret Service to let you in there. Because I don't think John John had to go through the Secret Service. The way was open. The door was open. And because you are his child, the door is open to come into the presence of God that we sing about. But we can't ever forget what that place is and who he is. Put it another way. and I didn't have a relationship with my father this way, but some of you did, and you can kind of relate to this. I've been a father, and still am, I guess, and a grandfather. And, and with my children, I love to get on the floor and wrestle with them when they were smaller. When they got bigger, it wasn't so much fun anymore. <clears throat> and play with them, and, you know, I love my, my teaser. We tease back and forth. And, you know, and so they're having a good relationship with dad and, you know, you know and, and, but there were times when they needed to be spoken to, not by daddy, but father. And when I spoke, I changed the tone of my voice and I changed what I called them. I didn't call them by some short name. I called them by their full name and I stood up when I talked to them that way. And they were now hearing from Father. With all the authority and all the power that ever I had to administer what needed to be administered, they were hearing now from Father. Those two weren't inconsistent, were they? Well, they're not in God either. God's not all one or the other. He's both. Understand this about God. Whatever He does, whether we understand it or not, He always does it out of love. Because He is love. He can't do something that's not motivated by love, and that means for your best. You may not understand. There were times my kids didn't understand why that spanking was for their best. They learned, though. They grew up and learned. To the point that at one point, I'd want them to thank me. Imagine a child thanking you for spanking them. So God has both of those aspects. Father means I'm not just your daddy and you can come and sit in my lap. You can't, but there are times I'm father. I expect things because I'm your father. All right, we understand that? Having said that, now we can look at this because we're going to begin to look today at the father side, at the president of the the country side, at the authority side, at who he is, because that's the side we're going to trigger the worship from. But there's another side we're going to begin to look at after this in the New Testament, which also triggers worship too. Both sides. Both sides. Okay. So now go to Exodus chapter 3. Now in this story here, God has called... It, it, the, the, uh, Israel is in bondage in Egypt. They've cried out to God, and God has already prepared... For 80 years, their deliverer, Moses. And he's about to commission Moses to go back from Midian to Egypt to lead God's people out. The last time they saw Moses, he was in trouble for killing an Egyptian guard. He then tried to get them to follow him, and they were not ready to follow him at all. They didn't even want to be identified with him. So he flees, he spends 40 years in, the, in, the, in, the, in Midian, in the desert, serving his father-in-law, taking care of his father-in-law's sheep in the wilderness. And one day he peers, he sees by this edge of this mountain, Sinai, he sees a bush that's burning, but it's not burning up. And I believe, I, I, I can't prove it by Scripture, but I, I can come close to proving it, that I believe what this is, is is a manifestation of the glory of God in this bush. It's not flames of actual fire where there's heat. It's the glory of God. And remember, I've taught you, when you start seeing things of God that are beyond your vocabulary, all you can use is words you know. There's times you see things and you just can't find words to describe it, especially in the Spirit, And so, which is why praying in the Spirit can communicate that. But you, can, you, you just can't find words. So Moses had to find words, that, the closest word in his vocabulary that best depicted what he was seeing was, was on fire. But it didn't burn up. It's not like any other fire. And it was the glory of God. God was speaking to him from this bush. He comes over and God, this bush speaks to him and says, take your shoes off for the land to which, which you're on is holy ground. Why? Because I'm here. And then he tells him what he's supposed to do. You're supposed to go back. I've heard the cry of my people. You're supposed to go back, you're supposed to go back and, and tell them that I've sent you to bring them out. And this is so often with God. God will send you somewhere and you're the one they're going to see, not him. They'll send you to go, go talk to your neighbor and tell them such and such, you know, and you go over there, you know, and they realize, you know, I don't know how they're going to accept me, but God's told me to go. God's, you know, they're going to see you. They're not going to see God. They may see God in you. And so, so uh, <laughs> that's what Moses is thinking. Okay, I'm supposed to go back and bring the elders of Israel together and tell them God appeared to me. Well, what do he look like? Well... You see this bush over here? Mm, You know, it was on fire, but it wasn't burning. Oh, yeah, really. Not only that, he remembers the last time they saw him. So basically, the question in Moses' mind is, how do I know they're going to respect that I've come from you? So what he asks them is this, who shall I say sent me? Who shall I say you are? Okay. So what's here? Because Moses doesn't know either. See, God has introduced himself to Moses as I am the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I'm a God who made covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So I'm not some Midian God. I'm not some, some, uh, some foreign God. I'm the real true God. And he says, okay, I got that, but I got to tell them who t- appeared to me out here. So he's asking God to reveal himself. That's what we're talking about, isn't it? We're talking about seeing who God is so we can worship him. And so God is about to reveal to Moses something about himself that can give Moses, first of all, confidence that he can go talk for this God and he'll back him up. Secondly, that they'll be able to hear who he is. All right. verse 13 and Moses said to God indeed when I come to the children of Israel and say to them the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they say to me what is his name remember a name describes you names have meaning especially in the Old Testament when we do it today it's kind of cute you know Parents are expecting a child and so one of the things, is, what are we going to name them? So they get these book of names and, you know, let's name them this because it's cute. It has, you know, means this and means that. Back in those days, it meant so much more. It was your identity. And so when Moses is saying, they're going to want to know what your name is, they're going to want to know who you really are. Tell me something about you that they need to hear. Who is it? What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. And this is what you shall say to the children of Israel, I am sent you. I am what? No, I am. Yeah, I know. I am deliverer? Yes. I am healer? Yes. I am redeemer? Yes. I am all those things, but that's not what I am. I just am. Anything after am begins to limit him. This is a little hard to grasp, but I want to spend some time on it because it's part important for what we're talking about. In Hebrew, it's Yahweh. Or it's Yahweh. What it literally means is the self-existent one. Everything else exists because this one created it. Well, then what created him? He just always was. I want to tell the scientists an answer to the question I am means the Big Bang. I just am. And science keeps going back. Well, what caused this? What caused... That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's some point where you got to go back to, all right, where did it come from? Yeah. Uh-huh. And that's what God's saying. When you go back all the way. Uh-uh. <laughs> like Harry Truman had on the same desk in the White House. The buck stops here. <laughs> this is it. Except the buck didn't stop there. Someone put Him there. But nobody put God there. So the beginning of worship in recognizing who it is we're worshiping is He just is. He is self-existent. He doesn't owe His existence to anyone or anything and on the other side is everything owes their existence to Him. He is the beginning, the source of everything ultimately some of what we're going to read a little later on this morning if we get to it this morning talks when God takes Job through this exercise were you there when I did this were you there when I formed this can you tell the measurements of this and as I was reading over it again this morning I'm thinking well you know our scientists can measure some of that today and I heard the Lord says yeah but who gave them the measurements who gave them the light by which they could see it Just tell him, I am. (laughs) I am, sent him. See, that's why when Jesus in John chapter 6 starts saying, I am, it gets everybody upset. Because they know what he was saying. They were saying he is the self-existent one. All right, let's look at something else. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 1. I want to look at Isaiah, because Isaiah, I I believe, was a prophet during a time that's very similar, a time for Israel, which is very similar where I believe the church is, at least in the United States. I'm not talking about us specifically, I'm just talking about the church. And Isaiah was a prophet that God sent to Israel at this time to speak for him. Because the prophets in those days, as they do to some degree today, they spoke God's heart about a matter. They represented God in the situation. And they spoke His heart. Verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. This is what God is saying about what He sees in Israel at the time. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. In other words, I cre- they came from me and I nourished them and I brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. And look at this. I love these verses. The ox knows its owner. A dumb ox knows who owns it. A donkey, there's some other terms we could use, but donkey is appropriate right here. <laughs> A donkey knows its master's crib, which is feeding trough. In other words, they know where they get their food from and who provides it. They know who to go to for their food. But Israel doesn't know. My people do not under... verse consider means understand. In other words, he's he's saying to Israel, an ox is smarter than you are. And a... I mean, a donkey is smarter than you are. Because an ox at least knows who owns it. And a donkey knows... Who owns it enough to know who's feeding it, where its food comes from. But you, oh Israel, you've lost you don't know any of this. Oh you think you're your own source. Ooh. Now we're talking about who God is, and so we can worship him in response to who he is, starts with who he just is in his essence. And he's creator. Everything comes from him. And Israel. Lost touch with that. And when you lose touch with that, you're open to begin to believe other gods have done it for you. Let's go over to chapter 2. There's so much we could read in here, but I don't want to take time. Verse 5. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's, let's open our eyes and see where things really are. We're talking about seeing God as He really is. For you have forsaken your people, O house of Jacob, because they, filled, they are filled with Eastern ways. They're thinking and believing things like Eastern philosophy and Eastern religion. And Eastern thinking has crept into the church. The doctrines and philosophies of the world are creeping into the church. We're beginning to think and adopt and accept things. Well, look at the rest of... Look at the next part of the verse. Look at this. Look at this. They are filled with Eastern or foreign ways. They are soothsayers like the Philistines. In other words, they look to... To to their horoscopes and they look to they look to signs in the sky they look to, to, to all kinds of things other than God for direction and they're pleased with the children of foreigners what that means is they made agreements with them that literally means they clasped hands in other words the thinking and the practices of the world have come in now because you've forgotten and lost track of who your source is. So you're turning to other things. Pastor Sam, the founder of this church, used to have this expression. He just cuts right to the heart of it. If you've got to go looking for other things to satisfy your heart, that means Jesus is no longer satisfying it. And if Jesus isn't satisfying the longings of your heart, you'll look somewhere else for it. And that's what Israel was doing. Now remember, Israel at this time, if you walked into a service, they were doing everything nice, everything right. They were performing their sacrifices correctly. They had priests in the right spot. They were doing outwardly that looked great. But what God's speaking through the prophet at is not what's going on outwardly, what's going on in their heart. And we'll see that in just a second. So this is the background to see where Israel was at the time. Verse 7, their land is also filled with silver and gold and there's no end to their treasures. Their land is also full of horses and there's no end to their chariots. These are things that they had put their trust in that God had told them not to put their trust in. Wasn't anything wrong having it. What he's referring to is they were trusting in their riches, they were trusting in their horses, represent their natural strength. There's no end to their chariots. Their la- land is full of idols and they worship the work of their own hands. So instead of worshiping God and by the way they were the work of His hands they are worshiping the work of their own hands which means they're their own God. And I've taught you this before, a human being is not spiritually capable of being God on her own. So if Jehovah, I'm not serving Jehovah as my God there's only one other I can be serving. And that's Satan. There's no in-between. There's no in-between. And this is what God's saying to her. So when I stop worshiping Him for who He is, I'm now open Pray for His enemy. And that's what happened in chapter 3 of Genesis. The moment they did what God told them not to do, they were vulnerable to the enemy coming in and beginning to speak into their lives and get their eyes on the wrong place and off of the one they were to live in worshipful reverence of. All right. Let's go over to chapter 29. We're just looking at a sampling of where they were in God's eyes, and then we'll show you how God answered them. 29, verse 13. Therefore, the Lord said, inasmuch as these people draw near with my mouth, their mouth. So they were coming, and they were praising God, and they were with their mouth they were blessing God, and doing outwardly what sounded wonderful. They honor me with their lips, but they've removed their hearts far from me. Their fear towards me is taught by the commandment of men. That word means by rote. They had no fear of God from their heart. It was simply by the things that they did. They went through the motions. They went through the ritual, but their heart was not towards God. It was towards other things. And they felt comfortable and secure because outwardly they were doing things that looked worshipful of God and probably felt blessed. But that's why we're looking at worship not from our side, not from how do we feel, not are we getting out of her. We're looking at it from the side of what does God say about this. I've had times over the last few months or so where a number of people, some of graciously from this congregation and some visiting ministers said, you know, you're doing a great job. And I said, thank you very much. But I know what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, He says, I don't even judge myself that way. Only one's going to judge me because, you see, my motive is not to do a great job in everybody else's eyes. Uh, That's good. It's good to have a good report among men. But my motive is to do what pleases Him. And even what we're doing now, I laid it before Him again this morning. And say, Lord, I want to do what's pleasing you. I want to do what's satisfying you. I want to do what you're drawing us to. I don't want to do something because I don't, I don't want to do something that's just to build a church. I don't, want, I don't even know how to do it, but I don't want to do that. I want to do what you want. I want to satisfy the desire of your heart. And I have to trust that as long as that maintained, contained, continues to be the desire of our heart, that even if we make mistakes, God's going to correct it and bring it back because he did it with King David, because he was a man after his own heart. And that's what God's saying here. Look, you're doing all the great things. Your music's great. You're jumping up and down. You're doing all kinds of great things. But your heart's far from me. I don't need your singing. I want your heart. The singing can help your heart get there. The worship can help your heart get there. But I don't want singing. I want the heart, is what God's saying. And it's far from me. All right. That was their condition. Now, look at, let's look now at how God brought them back. Let's go over to chapter 44. That was to show you where they are. And, and there may be aspects of where all of us are there to some degree. And here's God's answer. He was to show him things about Himself. It's interesting. God's answer wasn't to tell them to change what they were doing... God's answer was to reveal to them who He really is. And this is what He says about Himself. This is good. I love reading these. Verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides Me, there's no other God. Jesus said it differently in the first chapter of Revelation. I am the Alpha, the first word of the Greek, letter of the Greek alphabet, and the Omega, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the Almighty God. God saying, "I'm the beginning, and I'm the end, and I'm everything in between, and I've looked around up here. I don't see any other God." And there is no other God and, and, and who can proclaim as I do then let him declare it and set it in order for me in other words let him correct me since I appointed the ancient people in the things that are coming and shall come and let them show these things to them do not Do not fear, do not be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared to you, you are my witnesses. Is there there a God besides me? Indeed, there's no rock, that's foundation. I know no one. Let's go over to verse 18. They do not know, they don't understand, for He has shut their eyes that they cannot see, and their hearts that they cannot understand, and no one considers in His heart, nor is there knowledge, nor understand, nor say, I have burned half of it in the fire. All right. Here we go. Okay, excuse me, verse 24. I'm sorry. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who makes all things. That's who I am who stretches out the heavens all by myself, who spread abroad the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives the diviners mad, (laughs) who turns wise men backwards and makes their knowledge foolishness. That's who I am. who confirms the word of His servants and performs the counsel of His messengers. Let's go over to uh, 45 verse 5. I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you though you've not known me. In other words, I'll still hold you up even though you've not known me that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. getting the point here? I form the light and create the darkness. I make peace and create disturbance. I, the Lord, do all these things. Verse 18. Thus says the Lord God, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other chapter 46 verse 3 listen to me O house of Israel and all the remnant of the house of Israel who has been upheld by me from the birth who have who have been carried from the womb In other words, I've carried you you may have thought you were walking but I carried you even to your old age I am he, oh that's good news even to the gray hairs I will carry you I have made and I will bear I've made you and I will get you there I will leave, carry, and I will deliver you. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me me that we should be alike? They lavish gold out of a bag and weigh silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith and make it a god. They prostrate themselves, yes, to worship. They bear it on the shoulder and they carry it and set it in a place and it stands. I'm talking about idols here. From its place it shall be no more. Though one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer. There's also elsewhere, elsewhere he says, You've made images, and they have eyes, but they can't see. And they, have, they can't see you in your distress. They have ears, but they can't hear your cry. They have hands, but they can't reach out to help you. Why? Because you made them. And anything you made, you're greater than it. So how would you worship something you made and think it could help you when you created it or made it? So the created one worships the creator, not the other way around. Verse 8, remember this and show themselves. Recall to the mind, O transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, there it is again, and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things that are not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand and I shall, I shall do all my pleasure. So he's correcting them by Reminding them who he is. Now let's go to Job and see where God does this again. Job 38, and while you go there, you've got to go left. You've got to go back right before Psalms. Job is a story of a righteous man. That's what it says in the beginning. He's a righteous man, he's a good man by God's own testimony. But he's not perfect. And somewhere inside, down inside of him, there's an attitude that at least some of his, because he's one of the wealthiest men in the world, that some of his righteousness and some of his wealth has come from himself. And You understand under pressure, you find out what's really inside of you. Like the way you find out which kind of grape it is, whether it has seeds in it or not, is you squeeze it. Under pressure, you find out what's really inside. And Job gets under pressure like not many people have ever been under pressure. And he has a bunch of friends that come along to try to help him. And boy, you don't ever want to have friends like these friends. Because all they do is try to figure out what Job did wrong. And God sends a man along like a prophet named Elihu. Somewhere around chapter 32. And Elihu starts speaking correctly, young man. And then in chapter 38, I kind of picture this scene. It's as if God takes a lie, he just kind of pushes him aside and says, let me speak. Because Job's been speaking out all kinds of things. Ultimately getting to the point where he says, this isn't fair, God, because you've not treated me fairly. And what's really unfair is you're not like any man, because if some man did this to me, I could haul him into court and appear before a judge, and he'd have to give an account of why I've been treated that way. He's saying, God... What's unfair here is I can't bring you before some higher authority because you've been mistreating me. Woohoo. There's something down in that heart that's off. Because he says, oh, that there was a daisman. Oh, there was a judge, the judge between you, God, and me. We need some independent party to decide which one of us right. Because he was pretty sure which one was right, him. And so... This is how God deals with that heart that's gotten off. He doesn't blast Job. He just said, all right, let's go to court. And the first thing you do with a witness is you have them identify themselves. The first thing you do with a witness, you give their name, you give their address, and they tell a little bit about themselves. Who are you? so that the court can decide your credibility. Are you ready? By the way, there's no lawyer on this side, so he's, he's his own lawyer. And this is the one case where that's wise. Job chapter 38. Oh, I'm in Psalms. I wonder what it didn't look right. So the Lord moves his lawyer aside, Elihu, and says, I think I'm going to take over the questioning here. The Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind. That's a good start. And said, Who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. And here's the questions. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line or the measurement upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? And who laid its cornerstones? When the morning stars, that's the angels, when they sang together, and all the sons of God, that's angels, shouted for joy? And, or who shut up the sea with its doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? In other words, when it was created. Who made the clouds its garment and the thick darkness its swaddling band? When I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors, when I said, Thus far you may come, but no farther." further, and here your proud waves must stop, have you commanded the morning since your days began? And caused the dawn to know its place, that it may take hold of the ends of the earth, and the wicked it shaken out of it, and it takes form like clay or under a seal and stands out a garment? Verse 16, have you entered into the springs of the sea? Have you walked in the search of the depths? Tell me, verse 18, tell me if you know this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? Where does light come from? And darkness, where is its place? That you may take it to its territory. That you may know the past of its home. Do you know it because you were born then? Or because the number of your days are great? In other words, were you around then, Job? (laughs) Have you entered the treasury of the snow? It goes on and on and on and on and on. And then there's a little break as you go to chapter 40, and Job basically says, well, who can stand against you, God? (laughs) But listen, but he wasn't broken yet, because he's basically saying, same thing, poor me. How can I ever answer this onslaught against you? Because he says, you know, who contends with the Almighty and can correct him? Who rebukes him? That's what God says. And Job's answer is, I'm vile. How shall I answer? I'm just a piece of garbage. He's just, he's just fainting there. You can't fool God. So God starts again, verse 6 of 40. The Lord answered and starts in a whirlwind. He says, prepare yourself like a man. And I want to... Stand up! <laughs> I'm going to ask you some questions. Let's go over to 42. We'll bring this to a close. After seeing all this, well, forty-one. Let's go to ten, verse ten. No one is so fierce that he would dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand against him? Who has preceded me? God says that I should pay him. Notice what do I owe anybody? Everything under heaven is mine. Even you, Job. Chapter forty-two. And Job then answered the Lord and said, I now know that you can do everything and that no, no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me that I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you and you shall answer me. Look at verse 5. Now I've heard you. In the past, I've heard you by the hearing of the ear. But now, my eyes see you. What are we talking about? Worship begins with seeing who God really is. Worship begins by seeing who God really is. And one of the things that blocks that is images we have of God, attitudes we have about God, ourselves, It can be pride. It can be whatever it is. It doesn't matter what it is. The answer is the same. It's for the Spirit of God to begin to open our spiritual eyes to see who He is. And when we do, we begin to see who we really are in light of Him. And only then can we receive his grace and mercy. Because if you go on and read the rest of the story, God tells Job, now that he's restored him, pray for your friends. And as he prayed for his friends, it says, everything was restored to him two times. Two times. When all of God revealed, just stood there and says, this is who I am. You thought you knew me and, that, and, and because you thought enough that you knew me that you could speak to me that way, but here's who I really am. Here's who I really am. And when Job really saw it, he said, I've heard you before. I've known you. Begins by seeing him. And the essence of who God is, when he, when he gave an essence of himself, was simply, I am that I am. I am the self existent one. And everything else after that, I created. And it owes every moment of his existence. that's who I am and that's who we come to worship every time we come together the one to whom every beat of our heart every breath of our lungs comes from him everything comes from him and the realization of that instead of creating a fear to run away draws us closer to him because you realize what he could have done that he didn't do to you. The next aspect we're going to look at next week is his holiness. Because it's just not that he's creator. Now that we reference who he is, we now begin to see what can we learn about this God who is our creator. Let's pray. Father we desperately need to see who you are the way Job did there are times we've been so confident in ourselves and cocky at times and the real evidence of that Father is how we treat your word and such a lack of reverence that we so often have for it Such a lack of reverence we so often have for our times here together with you. Such a lack of reverence we have so often for the things of God. And we're all guilty before you. All of us. Open our eyes. Help us to stop hiding from you and afraid. But to do what Jesus said we can do. Come boldly, to a throne of grace to receive mercy and find help in time of need but to recognize who sits on that throne of grace that we may come with a true reverence by the Spirit open our eyes that we may see you Lord so that we may truly worship you and honor you out of our spirit for who you really are. And for this grace, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.